Hey guys, well, I'm back at home today. Uh, so you've got the wall of guitars and Bibles behind me instead of the fireplace. So uh, back to the normal scenery. Um, and hopefully the editing will go better this time because I actually remembered my hard drive. Um, well, I mean, remembered it's it's right where I left it when I forgot it last week. Um, so we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 7. Um, if you are following along in the app, you can use a QR code there um, and you can join us. Um, so we're actually going to be uh, covering a lot of the same passage today. So, um, in my Bible software, you guys know, I love my Bible software. It's called Logos. I talk about it a lot. Um, helps me study. You know, I say a pastor with good Bible software is like a mechanic with good tools, you know? Um, anyway, so, uh, in my Bible software, one of the resources that I have is a whole bunch of, um, uh, sermon archives from famous preachers. So I have, you know, Tim Keller and Don Carson and older preachers like John Chrysostom, the church father, or Charles Spurgeon from the 1800s or Jonathan Edwards. You know, I have a John Calvin, I think I have. Some, anyway, I have a bunch of these sermon archives. And what I do is I have this thing in my software where when I'm studying a passage, I pull it up in my study guide, which gives me, um, you know, all these different places uh, in my software that talk about this passage. So today I typed in, you know, Luke, um, you know, seven, 18 through whatever, you know, and I typed it in and, um, it gives me commentaries and it goes through the sermons and it says, who preached this sermon? And one of the things that happens a lot when I do that is I, I look at these sermons and I'm just like, oh, what did Tim Keller say about this passage? You know, what did Spurgeon say? I get some quotes from Spurgeon, that sort of stuff. Um, it just helps me study. But one of the things I see is a lot of times, um, these, uh, these preachers will preach the same passage three or four um, different times. And uh, they'll preach it from sort of from different angles. And, um, you know, I kind of have the same issue when I'm uh, preaching a sermon is, is what angle am I going to take? So when, um, when we preachers are writing sermons, what we do, there's a few layers to it. We think about the text and that we're reading and its various themes. Um, we think about uh, um, the the wider context of how it fits into the Bible, right? We think about the original languages, not as much me. I'm not great with the original languages, but, you know, we think about that sort of stuff. Um, and we think about the last thing that we think about, well, it's not the last thing, but the last thing on my list that we think about is the audience, right? So how are these various themes going to hit the audience that we're teaching to? And because there's all these variables, the the same preacher can pe preach the same sermon a couple of different ways. And so every week what I'm doing is I'm kind of choosing uh, which angle I'm going to come at this with and how I'm going to teach this to you guys. Every now and again, though, I come across a decision. Do I want to teach it this way or do I want to teach it this way? And sometimes it's kind of a, a pretty hard decision. And every now and again, what I'm going to do is we're just going to do, we're going to kind of cover part of it here and part of it there and do both. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to take basically the same passage we took last week, except this time we're actually going to read the whole thing. We're going to read it um, all the way to the end, and we're going to talk about it. So last week we came at it from this side. Um, this week we're going to come at it from uh, the other side and talk about some of the other big questions, right? Because one of the things I do too and when I'm writing these sermons is um, I write down as many questions as I can think of. What questions will people have from this text and what does it kind of pop up? What pops up as we read it? And I try to answer those questions. So today we're going to be back in the same passage we were in last week. Um, it starts in uh, Luke 7 um, and we're going to read um, 18 through 35 here. So let's start in verse 18. Uh, how far am I going? Okay. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? And when the men uh, had come to him, come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? So let's talk about, last week we talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to go over some of this stuff again. Um, we, let's talk about John's life. Think about the life of John the Baptist, what it was like to be him. One of my favorite things to do as we study the Bible is to really put ourselves into the story. Imagine, use your imagination, try to figure out what it would have been like to be this guy, John the Baptist, right? He had the miracle birth and growing up, his parents must have told him that story, right? And he was the one with the really old parents in school, right? You know, that everybody thought was his grandparents. Every school had that one kid, right? Whose parents were like 60, whose dad was like 60 or whatever. Anyway, um, so that was John. And he must have wondered why. And they told him the story about the angel visiting Zachariah in the temple and while he was doing his priest stuff. And we read all that. 
So then he must have grown up with this sense of purpose, and he grew up reading the Old Testament, reading the prophets. And as he read the prophets, it was he was reading stuff. Most of the prophets are pretty harsh um, uh, prophecies, or like words from God to his people about repentance and, and about judgment. And think about how many hours John the Baptist as a kid, before he was John the Baptist, when he was just, you know, John, um, think about how many hours he spent at his local synagogue uh, pouring over the Old Testament text because he probably didn't have one at home. He would travel there, he would sit there, he would read it. And we talked about a lot of how these kids would have learned this stuff when we talked about Jesus growing up. Um, he also would have spent a lot of time learning from uh, priests like his dad, uh, synagogue elders probably, um, and uh, maybe even a, a traveling rabbi or two. And what did he learn when this was happening? As he was being formed and as he was learning the scriptures, what was it that he learned? Probably the same stuff that everybody around him was teaching about the Messiah, that the kingdom of the Messiah was going to come. And they probably read things like Psalm 2. If you remember um, this week on Wednesday, I read Psalm 2 um, when we were praying and just about the kingdom of the Messiah coming to crush the enemies of God and that sort of stuff. And he read about the Messiah ruling on earth, judging sin, defeating the enemies of God's people. And as he grows up, this is sort of the worldview that he's a part of. And led by the Spirit, right, he starts his ministry. And he becomes the most popular man in all of Israel. Everybody wants something to do with John the Baptist, right? And so he gathers a group of disciples, and they head out to the desert, and he starts to teach them. And one of his disciples was Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's little brother. Um, and he starts baptizing people who are coming out to meet him. And his baptism, he's teaching about repentance. And um, one of the things about the baptism of John is, and we talked about this before, but he took a rite, a ritual in the Jewish religion that was for outsiders of the religion to become part of the part of the faith. And he said, no, 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 everybody needs this same cleansing, right? And so he starts baptizing people, and these huge crowds are showing up as he's calling them all to repentance. And another part of his message, though, is he's, he's the forerunner. So he starts to tell people, the king is coming. The Messiah is just around the corner. And then one day, this other popular rabbi, or, you know, kind of getting started, uh, Rabbi Jesus comes to him. And they're somehow distantly related. We don't know if they knew each other or what. But this other rabbi comes to him and with his, you know, some of his followers. And John the Baptist points to him in front of the whole crowd. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Right? This is the guy. This is the Messiah. And Jesus comes into the water and says, I want to be baptized. And John almost laughs. Me? Baptize you? You should be baptizing me, right? You don't need to be baptized. And so... Uh, we don't know how much John understood about what was going on, but he, bapti he baptized Jesus. And imagine how excited he was about Jesus. He knew his whole life was leading up to the moment where he would announce the Messiah. And this was it. This was it in the baptism. And so um, a little while later, somebody came to him and was talking, and he had that, that line where he's talking about Jesus. You know, they're complaining about Jesus becoming popular. And he says, well, of course he is. He must increase and I must decrease, right? The humility of John. But then at some point, things start to turn south for John. At some point, um, you know, he's a bold, fiery, judgment kind of preacher, right? Um, King Herod um, stole his brother's wife, you know? Like, uh, his brother's wife um, left, left her husband and joined up with King Herod, and everybody knew about it. It was like a huge scandal. Like, think of the, um, if you were around for that, you know, remember the Monica Lewinsky scandal? It's all that anyone was talking about in the whole country. It was kind of like that. Somebody comes up to John and asks him, what do you think? And John let everybody know what he thought about King Herod and his adultery. And so Herod and his wife had John arrested. So they take him to prison. And he's and, and prison in this age was not, I mean, I've, I've said this before, and I don't mean to demean prison now. Prison now is terrible. Nobody wants to go to prison, right? I mean, I watch those TV shows about, you know, insiders look at prison, you know, um, what's it called? I'm blanking on the name. It's on MSNBC. They play the same show all the time. But anyway, um, uh, you know, prison's no joke. But prison back then really was no joke. They didn't even give you food. People had to bring you food. Um, there was probably no bed, no pillow, nothing. It was cold and it was damp. And a lot of people that spent any time in prison um, uh, died from disease. It was really awful. And so John the Baptist is here and he's in prison. And day after day after day goes by. And there seems to be no hope of him um, ever being released. 
and his disciples keep showing up and they're bringing him food. And when they bring him food, they're giving him the news about what Jesus is doing. So John is sitting here in his cold, dark prison and he being, uh, after being arrested by the, the puppet king of the Roman Empire, right? This, this guy was not a real king. He was just installed by the Romans. And so this Roman occupying force is the enemy of God's people. And he's just been preaching. The, the enemies of God's people will de- be defeated, right? The, the Messiah is coming. And his whole life, he's heard this message about the enemy, um, about the Messiah defeating God's enemies, right? And restoring the kingdom of Israel, restoring the kingdom of God. And so he starts to hear about what Jesus is up to from his disciples. And what Jesus is up to is nothing like what John imagined, probably. Right? He's out there, he's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and outcasts. And he seems to be gathering, gathering kind of this group of misfit disciples. Um, he's healing people, which is cool. But, I mean, what does that have to do with kicking out the Romans, Right. And then he's teaching. They come back and they tell him, well, he just taught this sermon and there were were thousands of people there. It was this great sermon. Well, what did he say? Well, he said to love your enemies, right? And John, at some level, must have been confused about this, about all of this. What he thought was going to happen when the Messiah uh, was to come wasn't lining up with what he thought was going to happen, right? And so um, he goes to his disciples and you know, he's confused. He goes over his his notes. You know, he's thinking in his head about these prophecies. and It's just, it's not adding up. The Old Testament talks a lot about judgment and holiness and now the Messiah and how the Messiah is going gonna, is gonna to set up this kingdom. And here I am, he's thinking, sitting in this prison of one of the enemies of the people of God. And it just doesn't add up. And so you can imagine he's pretty confused. And so he sends his disciples. He, he, he gets two of his disciples to come over and he says to them, hey guys, I need you to go ask Jesus a question. I need you to go ask him what he's up to. Are you, was I wrong about you? What am I missing? And so, um, so they go and they ask Jesus and look at Jesus's answer. Verse 21. In that hour, we, you know, that we read this last week, we talked about this a lot. In that hour, he healed many people of the diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, so he answers the disciples, uh, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news, uh, and the poor have good news preached to them. Okay, so that's that was what we read uh, last week. So John's missing piece, right? Assuming that John was putting weight on the judgment, and this is what he was missing, and the establishment of the kingdom. Um, Jesus' answer makes a lot of sense. Basically, he's saying to John, "Look, you've got part of the picture, but you don't got um, you don't have the whole thing, right? You're you're missing a big piece of the picture. Look at all the other verses that you're missing that describe the kingdom of the Messiah." and then he starts quoting all these different spots from Isaiah. And we read, we, I'm not going to do that again today. We went through that. If you missed that last week, we went through and read all of the, the quotations in Jesus's answer from the book of Isaiah. Now, Jesus's answer, what he's saying is that the kingdom of the Messiah is going to be about uh, restoration. It's going to be about restoring the world the way that it was originally meant to be. And by healing and doing all of this stuff that he's doing, he's giving glimpses of that future restoration, that he's giving sort of a down payment on the fact that he is going to put the world back together. And this was the whole sermon last week, so I'm not going to harp on this a lot today. Um, Looking at Jesus's answer, like what did he mean by this answer? That's what we did last week. So that was coming at the text from this way. Coming at the text from the other side, though, today is uh, what we're going to talk about is not... um, what Jesus' answer was, but how Jesus answered him. I want you to notice uh, the way that Jesus responds. Uh, Look at Jesus' tone, right? That's what we want to do. Look at his tone in the way that he responded to John. Um, Imagine for a second um, that there was a a married couple who've uh, known each other for a long time, known each other their whole lives. They grew up, they got married as adults, and um, they're madly in love and they've been married for a while now. Now imagine that the husband is going through a rough time and he starts to wonder in his mind if, man, should I ever have gotten married? And so one day he says to his wife, I don't think I should have married you. I think I made a mistake, right? Did I make a terrible mistake while they're fighting, you know, over something that doesn't really matter? That's what he says. You know, he bursts out in anger. I never should have married you. What's his wife going to say to him in that situation? How is she going to react? She's 
probably going to tell him to sleep on the couch uh, or get out of my house, right? She's going to be mad. She's going to be hurt, right? You just, what do you mean? You, you shouldn't have married me, right? That's sort of a normal human reaction to something like this. Well, is that, think about though, this is kind of a similar situation with John, right? Um, John and Jesus. Was I wrong about you? That's what John literally just had the guts to ask Jesus. How did Jesus respond to that? Right? He doesn't respond the way that we think he probably... Okay, I'll say this. He doesn't respond the way that I would have responded as a fallen and messed up sinner. I would have been upset. Right? If one of you came to me and said, I don't know about this church plant. I made a huge mistake joining the porch. I would be hurt. I'd be angry. Um, you know, you're, are you even a good pastor? Right? What are we doing here? That would be devastating to me. And I would probably lash out. I don't know what I would do. That'd be terrible. But anyway, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus gives him a real answer. He answers his objection in a loving and a kind way. John only had half of the picture. He was focusing on stuff that um, that the, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to do at the second coming in the kingdom. He, he was missing the timeline. He didn't have the whole thing um, figured out. He didn't understand what Jesus came to do fully in the first coming. And so Jesus very gently filled in the gaps. And he sends the disciples back with that message, right? Here's, go explain this to John. And, you know, that will be helpful for John. And then um, verse 23, he keeps going. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So after years of um, hearing this message, like everybody in this culture thought that the Messiah was going to come and was going to kick out the Romans. That was the popular view, right? We even see this after Jesus's resurrection, the, the disciples ask him, are you, okay, are you going to establish the kingdom now? He's like, guys, guys, you still don't quite get it, right? Before Pentecost at the beginning of Acts. Um, uh, this is what everybody believed. And so this, this message that there's going to be these two different comings of Jesus. And in the first one, he's going to come and he's going to, he's going to um, die in the place of sinners, right? And he's going to do this ministry of healing and loving his enemies. Uh, this was a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. And so Jesus proclaims here in verse 23, this blessing, right? Happiness is found in seeing who Jesus really is and letting him really be uh, who he is, letting him really be the Messiah, not trying to squeeze him into a mold. And so now Jesus, um, he, he gives this blessing and he knows that a lot of people just heard about John's doubt. And so many of the people who were here and the followers began their, their, their journey of following Jesus by following John. So they, like Andrew, he started following John and then John says, hey, that's the guy. So he went, he switched and he started following Jesus. And that's probably how a lot of these people started. So Jesus next, he spends some time reassuring this crowd about who John, who John is, right? Guys, don't be upset about John and this doubt that he has. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are king are in king's courts. Jesus now talks about um, talks about John, and he asks the crowd this rhetorical question. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The idea is there's a single reed, right, being pushed around by the wind. It's flimsy. Uh, it's unreliable. Then he says, what did you go see a guy in soft clothing? So remember John's actual clothing, right? Camel skin, loincloth, and he ate honey and locusts, right? He was kind of a wild, uh, you know, grisly kind of a man, right? Soft clothing was worn by people who didn't do any actual work, right? They, 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 you know, any like manual labor, I'll say. They're in the palace. It's like a Costanza from Seinfeld when he's a hand model. Well, your hands really are soft. Yeah, that's what comes from avoiding manual labor for every day of your entire life. It's kind of like that, right? And so do you see what Jesus is saying? John's not somebody who could be pushed around, right? He was steady as a rock. He was not political, uh, but he was um, moral. He was solid. And he always uh, knew what was right. And he did what was right. And why did he do it? Because he was a prophet. Look at verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Right? So John now, Jesus says, is the last of the great Old Testament prophets. Um, Jesus tells the people, 
in this quotation um, that John the Baptist is the one that was prophesied in Malachi 3.1. That's what this quote is from. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. And so this crowd has heard now John's doubts. And so Jesus, what he does is he reassures them just because John had these doubts, just because John sent these messengers to kind of clear some things up, doesn't change who John really is. And in fact, Jesus says, he goes even further in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So among those born of women, which is just kind of an ancient way to say, ancient slang to say, everybody. He says, none is greater than John. Well, in what sense? Right? Well, John fulfilled his role as a herald perfectly. He, he clearly announced that the Messiah was here when he said, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. He told the crowds, Jesus is the Messiah. That was his main job. He boldly uh, called people to repent and to enter the kingdom of the Messiah. And then when it was his turn to move into the background, he did just that. Uh, when it was his, you know, right? He must increase and I must decrease. John was a fantastic prophet. He was a fantastic herald. And But what Jesus says is, but, and he turns to the crowd, John is great, but the one in the, who's least in the kingdom is better than him. What does that mean? Well, John was the, the, the last great prophet of the Old Testament era. But the new covenant that Jesus is instituting, this new kingdom, is the better covenant. And it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. And so it's better to know a little bit about Jesus and the gospel story than to be the greatest Old Testament prophet. Right, so you read about Elijah raising people from the dead. You read about Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these guys. And Jesus is saying, it's better to be on this side of me coming to earth. Right, it's better to be uh, in the new covenant. Right? And the thing is, John never got to see the cross. Right? He's executed before that happens. He never got to see the resurrection. He never got to be a part of uh, the early church, right? That he passed away, right? He was, he was killed before all that happened. So Jesus is saying, look, it's better to be you guys um, than to be him because you have more revelation. And Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, I said, I read these sermons and in his sermon on this passage, he said, as we may say, um, he says, as a rule, that the darkest day is lighter than the brightest night. And what he means by that is, even the least in the kingdom of God is still like, you know, the uh, the darkest of days. It's still brighter, though, than the brightest night. That's what he means by that. And I love that. Um, and so Jesus, later on, uh, fast forward in the book of Luke, he says something very similar, right? And he says, uh, this is Luke chapter 10. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that have seen what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. And so Jesus, he's praising John uh, as the greatest Old Testament prophet. But at the same time, he's saying, but you guys have this great blessing. Um, and then, uh, you know, he talks about how much more lucky right they are to have been on this side of the covenant, right? To see his work. But there's a flip side to this too. So um, rejoicing in the new covenant is a, uh, is a big deal, right? Being a part of the new covenant is a big deal. But there are some people who, unlike John, unlike Peter, and unlike the, you know, the disciples and the followers of Jesus, look at the new covenant and say, I don't want any part of that. Right? They're sort of the opposite of John the Baptist. Right? They're not uh, Jesus-focused. And this is this next section that Jesus talks about. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Right? So um, the Pharisees, these lawyers, they're rejecting the purpose of God um, because it didn't happen um, the way that they wanted it to happen. Right? So they're looking at this new kingdom and they're not rejoicing, right? They're angry. Now Jesus continues, verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So uh, now Jesus flips the opposite of what he did in praising John. 
right? In praising John, he said, look, this is why John's so great. This is why you guys are great. You're part of the kingdom. But now let's talk about these opponents of the kingdom of God. You see, there were people that were so wrapped up in themselves uh, that they opposed the very work of God. People who claim to be followers of God are opposing the work of God. And this is how Jesus proves it. And he does so by comparing their reaction to his ministry and their reaction to John's ministry. So when John came, they said, he's too serious, right? And he doesn't even know how to enjoy life. He must be evil. And then Jesus comes and does the opposite. And so they say, all he does is party with sinners, right? He must have a demon. And Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. And he illustrates the point by doing what he always does so brilliantly. He tells a parable. So before Nintendo Switch... Um, Kids had to play with their, I sound like an old man, but they had to play with their imaginations. Um, and uh, imagine, Jesus says, you know, like this group of kids, they're out there and they're playing and imagine them. And one of them says, all right, let's play wedding. Uh, you be the groom, you be the bride, and we'll be sort of the family clan and we'll have a party just like a wedding. Now, that would be a pretty normal game for any kid in the first century to play because weddings were like a big deal. They were the biggest party of the day. Everybody looked forward to these feasts, these weddings in a pretty you know, hard life, this was, this was a high point, right? Going to a wedding. And so they would play wedding. But if you ever played with a group of kids when you were a kid, you always knew there was that one kid who says, well, I don't want to play that. So some other kid pipes in, okay, well then let's play funeral. Now that seems super weird to us, but the funeral was the other major gathering of the day where the whole town got together. If you remember the story of the widow at Nain, just a few sermons ago, right? The whole town was there. And so the kids, they see, oh, everybody's getting together. This is fun, right? And so, you know, or whatever. So some kid says, well, let's play funeral. And that same kid says, well, I don't want to play funeral either. If you looked at that kid, what conclusion would you draw? It's not that the kid doesn't like the game. It's that he wants to be the one to come up with it. He's so selfish. He would, he would rather not play than play somebody else's game. And that's the Pharisees and the scribes who oppose the work of Jesus and oppose the work of John. If you don't play my game, then we're not playing, right? I'm take my ball and I'm going home kind of a thing. And then the last verse here, Jesus says, verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children, which is just a fancy way to say, um, look at the fruit in our lives, right? John's calling people repentance. Jesus is out there healing people and giving glimpses of the kingdom. And these guys over here are ignoring the work of God. And later on, Jesus will say, you know, they're laying these heavy burdens on people that aren't freeing, but they're crushing. And so the opposition uh, to Jesus, it's different in how they oppose Jesus versus how they oppose John, but it's basically the same idea, right? I want to be in charge. And so, um, Anyway, so that's our text. So what I want to talk about kind of to, to wrap up here, to close, is as I told you before, as we read through this, uh, one of the things I do is I write down questions and themes. And one of the big questions here is, did John the he, he doubted, right? John the Baptist sent his doubts to Jesus. So let's look, I want to look at the idea of doubt and I want to talk about this for a sec. So this is how last week we talked about Jesus' answer and glimpses of the kingdom and what that means for us. But now I want to come at it from the other side and I want to answer that question. What's the deal with John's doubt? Now, John's doubt was honest. I think that's important to say. Do you, do you, do you know understand what I mean when I say honest doubt? Um, it looks like John was genuinely sitting in prison and he was cold and he was hungry um, and he was tired he was worn out. He may have been sick. We don't know. And he was genuinely struggling. But the thing is, the Bible is not a book of um, superheroes, right? This is not a comic book where we're supposed to emulate, you know, the heroes and don't... The Bible is a story of real, actual, flesh and blood people with minds and souls and hearts and feelings um, and, and pain and struggles, right? And so these real people in the Bible, they struggle with doubt. There's a bunch of examples. Um, I had to whittle this list down, but I'll give you a few, right? The first one that I want to read to you, actually, we're not going to read all these stories, but the first one I want to talk to you about is Elijah. So we've read about Elijah raising the, you know, raising people from the dead. And we've talked about him a little bit um, as we've read through the book of Luke. Um, but let me read to you uh, from 1 Kings, uh, this is chapter 19. Um, so this is right after the, there's this big showdown. I don't know if you know the story, but Elijah and the prophets of Baal have this big like contest to see who's got his real Elijah wins. And then, uh, the, the, the wicked queen Jezebel is trying to kill Elijah because he won and killed all the prophets of Baal. So he's on the run. Um, and verse one, Ahab 
told Jezebel that Elijah, what Elijah had done, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, which is just a fancy way to say, I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he goes out into the desert, and he comes and he sat down, uh, he, he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better uh, than my father's. And he lay down, he slept under the broom tree. So he... He finds this tree, lays down, and he says, God, I am done with this crap. I just want to die. I'm done. I, I can't. I'm out of strength. I can't do this anymore. I have no idea what you're doing. I thought this prophets of Baal thing would go well, and I'd defeat them in this battle, and um, everybody would see that you're the Lord. And that's clearly not what's happening. Uh, middle of five. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake uh, baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey uh, is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a. When am I going to read this whole part? Uh, no, I'm not going to read the second part here. I'm going to stop there because of time. But anyway, so what happens next is then he goes to this mountain and then God actually talks to him, right? And it's the whole, there's, he's not in the fire and the earthquake, he's in the still small voice, um, if you know that section. But think about that story, right? What happened? Elijah was really bummed out to the point that he was suicidal. And what did God do? Did God show up and did God say, what are you, an idiot? Don't you know who I am? I'm God. You're just some... Some, you know, some dude that I created. How dare you talk to me like this? How dare you question me? Is that what God said to him? No. What did God say? I love, I think Kayla told me that, you know, sent me that. Um, I forget what it was. Something on Twitter or something where somebody was like, you know, God's answer was basically, dude, take a nap and have a snack. Right? <laughs> you, you need to relax and this is what's going to help you. Right, And God came down and sent this angel and took care of Elijah and brought him through his doubt so that he could do a bunch of other really cool stuff. Or think of the story of Job, right? And, and the suffering of Job, where uh, it's really kind of a weird story. I can't wait to teach it to you someday. But God and Satan basically make a bet about Job. And, um, you know, so Satan starts messing with Job and his family dies and all his wealth is taken away and his health is taken away. And, uh, you know, Job, at the end of it, he, he has some serious questions about justice and about the way God works. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got these three idiot friends that show up and they start telling him, oh, that God's doing this to you to punish you and all this stuff. And, um, you know, so Job is steadfast through a lot of it. But towards the end of the book, he basically wavers and says, I don't know what's, what God's doing. And God comes down and God's answer to Job is really interesting. It's not Here's what I'm doing. God just tells him who he is. I'm the God that created the universe, buddy. I need you to trust me. All right? And a little harsher than that, but that's what God says. And Job admits that he was wrong and not trusting God, and then everything is kind of put back to normal. All right? But God's he comes down and he answers Job. Um, or another Old Testament example is the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God, and he's looking at the sin of the people of God, and he goes to God and he says, God, what are you doing? Aren't you going to do something about this? What are you, lazy? <laughs> you know? And so God says, no, I'm going to handle it. And he comes, he actually gives Hosea, he says, first, you're not going to like, you're not going to like it, but I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to punish the people of God. And so he gi he gives Hosea the answer. And then Hosea goes, oh, you shouldn't have told me that. I don't like that at all. Right. And the last one, the most famous, um, the most famous story of doubt is Doubting Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. And we talked about Thomas a little bit when um, we did the list of the apostles. But um, if you remember, I said Thomas went, I think it was to India and, and spread the gospel to India and was killed for his faith. And then we still call him Doubting Thomas, right? <laughs> this unlucky guy, right? Bad Luck Brian, the original Bad Luck Brian is Thomas. But the story goes like this. Jesus showed up to the 10 disciples. So Judas was already dead. Thomas was out getting Starbucks. Jesus shows up and um, says, hey, to the disciples. Then he takes off. Thomas comes back. And uh, Thomas says uh, to, 
uh, you know, the, the disciples say to Thomas, dude, we saw Jesus. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, eh, mm, I don't know. I think he died. I, you know, I saw him die. And they go, no, dude, he really is alive. And Thomas says, no, I, not unless I put my hands where, you know, in the, where they nailed the nail holes, his hands and his feet and touch his side. I'm not going to believe. Not going to happen. And then I didn't look this up, but what is it? Like a week and change goes by, um, like a long time. And every day the disciples, dude, we really saw him. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I don't know. I don't think so. You know, it's not gonna, not unless he shows up. And this is the most famous story of doubt. And what does Jesus do? Right. It says one day Jesus shows up and he walks into the room where they all are. He walks over to Thomas. And what does he say? Dude, look at my hands. Touch him. Touch my side. Touch my feet. It really is me. And Thomas worships and, you know, is completely transformed. <laughs> Jesus doesn't show up and say, what are you, an idiot? Ten people here just told you. Your ten buddies that we've been traveling with just told you that they saw me alive. After I just spent three years telling you I was going to die and rise from the dead. And you still don't believe it? You know what? Mm, we're going to find a new disciple or a new apostle, right? We, you know, thanks for playing, but we're, we're going to replace you. That's not what Jesus says, right? He comes in gentle. And he comes in and he gives Thomas the answer that he needs to believe. I think that's really important, right? Because that tells us a lot about doubt. It tells us what Jesus thinks about doubt. And as we look at these stories of how God reacts to our doubts, um, where does doubt come from? That's the next thing I want to ask. As we're talking about doubt, we see Jesus react. But where does it start? Where does doubt come from? Well, I made kind of a non-exhaustive list. Um, doubt comes from Satan, right? Think of Eve in the Garden of Eden, just happy, you know, uh, walking around eating fruit. And Satan comes up to her and says, you really believe this stuff that God told you to believe? Right? Satan got in her head. Satan does the same thing to us. You really believe this crazy gospel story? You really believe loving your enemies is the best way to go about this? Right? You really believe that Jesus died for your sins? Satan likes to get in our head and he likes to find the place where um, we're the most vulnerable and then chip away at it, chip away at it, chip away at it. Um, another place doubt comes from is just sometimes just exhaustion. Right? The Christian life is hard. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus in the middle of Babylon, right? where um, all of the world system seems to be trying to crush us and seems to be opposed to the kingdom of God. And we're trying to live in the kingdom of God. And it's tiring, right? It's exhausting. Think of how tired Paul must have been, right? All that walking, all the beatings, everything Paul went through. He must have been, it, it just, sometimes it just becomes a lot. And um, this is what happened to Elijah. He was just tired. He needed a nap and a snack, right? Um, another place that doubt comes from is suffering. So this is what we saw with Job. Job's doubt and his questioning God and just his confusion came from from his suffering, right? His family died, his uh, all his wealth was taken away, his sickness, um, his health, his health was taken away. He was, you know, boils all over his whole body, and as he's sitting there and he's suffering, um, doubt crept in. You know, I've um, when I was younger, uh, I still kind of have stomach problems, but when I was younger, I was really bad. I had really bad stomach problems to where I was. Uh, what, like 120 pounds when we got married, Melissa and I got married. And um, I was throwing up like almost every day, a couple times a day, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, why I couldn't keep food down. And I just remember, man, like there were times of doubt. There were times where, God, what are you doing? Right? I just, I don't understand what you're going, you know, what, why I'm going through this, right? And so the suffering brought doubt. Um, doubt can come from um, not something in the Bible that bothers you as you do your reading plan and you read something and you're just like, what is going on here? There's a lot of that stuff that kind of clashes against our culture. Just like this is what happened with John the Baptist here. His whole culture was telling him the kingdom of the Messiah meant that they were going to kick the Romans out, but that's not what the Bible said. And so as he was reading the Bible and it wasn't matching up with his culture, eh, you know, and so for us, like the, like there's some big ones, there's some things in the, the scriptures that bother us that um, like as you read the Old Testament, there's rules about, you know, how to treat slaves. And you're like, does the Bible condone slavery? Um, as you read through the book of Joshua and uh, Samuel and some of these books, right, is did God promote genocide against the Canaanites? 
And then you flip over to Romans and you, he's talking about election and how God elects his people and, and God makes that decision and our salvation is in his hands. And you think, man, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. I've spent my whole life with the idea of individual freedom. Um, and then you go to other books and you read about the Christian sexual ethic and God's plan for sexuality and how, how opposed it is to so much of what we learn in our culture. And so as you read this stuff, you think, you know, he's got it, it, the seeds of doubt are sown in your mind. Um, uh, another place that doubt can come from is when we give in to sin, right? So when we sin, we're fallen and sinful and we're broken people. John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet, prophet, at the same time, he was a sinner and he did things he hated. Paul even said that, right? I keep doing all this stupid stuff that I hate and I, I can't, you know, uh, you know, that's that verse, right? That's what Paul says. Uh. <laughs> and so, um, the Satan loves it when we do this because one of his favorite tricks is that this, at, when we sin to get in our ears and to make us doubt God, if God is so great and if God is so good, then why are you continuing to sin? Why do you keep falling into this same temptation? Why are you angry? Why are you looking at this on your screen? Why do you keep doing these selfish, uh, you know, these selfish things? It's, you know, you're not supposed to do this stuff and you keep doing it because maybe God's not real. That's what he says. That's what Satan gets in our head, right? If God is so good and real, then why does this keep happening? Another place that that um, temptation, I'm sorry, um, doubt comes from uh, is uh, just disappointment with God. That was Hosea. Hosea was looking at the world around him and the sin around him, and he was disappointed in what God was doing. Um, this happens a lot, right? Somebody doesn't get the job that they think this will make my life happy and they don't get that job or a relationship breaks up or life starts to fall apart and God is not doing the things in your life. This was me with um, uh, my sickness too when I was younger. It was just, God, what are you doing? Right? He wasn't doing the things that I thought he needed to be doing and it caused, you know, doubt, right? Uh, in my life and that, that it happens, right? Satan gets in there and he says, dude, if God's so good, then why is this happening to you? Um, another one, the last one here that I'll talk about is just sometimes doubt comes from laziness in letting the Bible be the thing in our life that forms us, right? Letting God form us through the power of the Holy Spirit using the scriptures. Um, this is the American follower of Jesus, right? This is our MO. This is what we do um, is, and we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to get into this a whole bunch, but everything out there is trying to form you, is trying to mold you. And we, as the followers of Jesus, we want to be intentional about what it is that's molding us, right? We want to take in a lot of information so that we understand the world system, but only let the Bible be what folds us and, um, sorry, forms us and, and molds us into followers of Jesus, right? Um, and a lot of times we just don't do it. We just get lazy. We don't spend time in the word. We don't spend time in prayer. We don't spend time asking God uh, to form us in his scripture. And what happens is it opens up these areas in our lives for other things to come in and form us. And when that happens, then also some of those things are opposed to the kingdom of God and it sows doubt in our lives. Now, that list that I just gave you, those are all honest, mostly honest doubts, right? When that stuff happens, because we're fallen and broken sinners, doubt seeps in. But there's a difference between, and this is important, there's a difference between honest doubt and dishonest opposition to God. Right, the Pharisees and these scribes, uh, Jesus basically calls them children, and he says that uh, their, which was an insult, and he says that their doubt was, um, uh, it was selfish doubt. Right, so there's, the, he's trying to make this distinction between honest doubt and selfish opposing God. One says I'm struggling, and the other says I'm only going to buy into this if it if it happens my way. I'm only going to do this if this happens a way that I approve of. One involves humility and the other involves sort of an egregious pride. And Jesus always reacts with grace to one and with a harsh tone to the other. Right? James 4.6, uh, quoting, I think it's Proverbs, he says, uh, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when you have real doubt, the devil is always going to get in your head and try to convince you that you're not in the group of honest doubt, but that you're in that group that opposes God. But that's just not what we see play out in the Bible. Doubt is not opposition to God. Doubt is struggling to follow him with your whole heart. And in our broken and our fallen state, because we're sinners who... um 
not because we sin, but because we are sinners at the core, our minds are bent inward. Our minds that are supposed to be, our whole lives are supposed to be about God, and they've become about ourselves. And so because that's true, doubt is bound to happen. And if you get through your life of faith without any serious doubt, any serious struggle, it means that either you're not a fallen sinner or that you're not really digging into your faith. Your faith is shallow, right? I mean, And I'm not saying that doubt is good, right? But what I am saying is that God, because we're sinners, when we doubt, God is gracious. So how do we get past doubt, though? What do we do? When we come to these, you know, the dark night of the soul or these hard seasons of life, what do we do? Well, as a starting point, we have to be okay um, with the idea that as fallen and sinful human beings, we're going to struggle with faith. Faith is not perfect in this life. It will be in the next, but right here it's not. And so it's not that we always have to win. It's that we always have to keep struggling forward, right? And so as a church, we have to be okay helping each other process real questions that we have, real things of faith. Um, In some Christian circles, though, doubt and struggle struggling with faith are treated very harshly. This is part of sort of the tradition that I grew up in. Um, I remember getting chewed out once uh, at a church event for asking a genuine, actual question. And I remember the word doubt was even used, right? You know, or, uh, you know, (coughs) it was a real bummer. And so um, when I became a youth pastor, one of the things we did was, and I've told you guys about this, we should do this sometime, maybe on one of our prayer nights or something, where I just had people um, write questions on a piece of paper, fold them up and put them in a hat with no name. And I said, it can be literally any question. I don't care what it is. And if it has to do with theology, I'll do my best, you know, or something with the square, if it's, you know, what's the square root of something, I'm not going to be able to answer that. But, you know, questions of the faith, I'm going to do my best to answer. And we would do this every other month or so. And because what I told the kids was, I want you to really press into this stuff. And I want you to, to, to try to figure this out. And I want to help you do that. Um, because that's just not how I was raised. And I think that attitude that says doubt is evil and doubt is something wrong with you, uh, you know, um, sort of almost punishing doubt. That attitude comes from fear. And the fear there is that deep down, these people are afraid that there's nothing underneath our faith. They don't really trust our faith, uh, that, that deep down this is all actually true. Um, it's like there's this Japanese company. I watch this TV show. I watch this TV show about art and what they – I know it sounds really interesting, right? And uh, it's on YouTube. I think I forget what it's called. And um, it's this British show. And they take people's paintings from their house and they find out everything they can about them and they try to get them um, – authenticated or find out how much they're worth or who is the artist or whatever, you know? And so that they talked there about, there's this one Japanese company that owns this disputed Van Gogh painting. And nobody knows if this painting is a real Van Gogh or if it's a forgery. And, um, a lot of people think this painting is a fake. Uh, the company that owns it that has an insurance, I think it's actually an insurance company. They think it's a real painting, but here's the thing. They won't let anybody see it. They won't let anybody study it. Nobody gets to handle it up close. Why? Because at some level they're afraid this painting is not real and they don't, there's a chance that this is not real, that it's a fake. That's how a lot of Christians treat their faith and treat our faith, right? Um, they, they say on the surface, we don't doubt and do all this stuff, but they're afraid that deep down underneath, underneath the surface, that there's nothing holding up their faith, that their faith has no foundation. And that's really not a great approach. If our faith is real, it's true. And if it's true, then we should have a confident approach, even when we come into those times of doubt. And so what do we do? What do we do in those times? If there really is something underneath our faith and we come to a time where we're struggling, what do we do? What did John do? What did Job do? Right? What did Hosea do? Right? They were real about their doubt and they took it to the Lord. You see, that's the thing about the book of Job. Job is never praised for his doubt. What he's praised for is one of the interesting things is he never, um, he takes his doubt to the Lord. That's what he says. I want to talk to God about this. What did John do? He sent messengers to Jesus. Are you the one or should we look for another? Like, Lord, can you help me here? That's what Hosea did. God, what are you doing about this stuff that I'm seeing? Right? Doubt is defeated by looking at how beautiful Christ is. Right? That's the best way to get over the hurdle of doubt. Right? A lot of people think, well, you have to get all your questions answered. Uh, you know, I mean, 
yeah, we want to do that as best we can. But the real best way is to look at how beautiful Jesus is. Um, imagine a groom, again, back to this married couple. Imagine a groom um, getting cold feet on the wedding day. And I just don't know if I can go through this wedding, whatever. Melissa's probably thinking now, man, did this all this stuff happen to John? Does he think? No, 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 don't think that. Anyway, these are just completely made up stories. Okay, so here's this groom getting cold feet. I was too drunk on my wedding day. To, no, I'm just kidding. I was not. <laughs> anyway, um, so this groom is getting cold feet and, you know, his groomsmen come up. Dude, you know, they're trying to convince him and making a right decision. No, man, you're. this is, you know, the girl that, you know, you're going through with this and nothing works. Um, somebody convinces him. Did Well, just... You know, get up to the, the, didn't this happen in Friends maybe? I don't know. Anyway, just get up to the um, the altar and uh, the, just take it step by step. So he goes up to the altar and, um, you know, he sees his bride come in the back door. And all of a sudden, all of his doubt is gone. That's what happens. He sees how, how beautiful she looks, how lovely she is in her dress. And all of the doubt just washes away, right? That's what happens with Thomas. That's what happens with Elijah. That's what happens with John. That's what happens with Hosea and Job. Right? When they see the bride, the doubt washes away. So how do we get there? How do we see the bride? Well, there's a few ways. Right? We, we um, encourage each other as a church community. One of the best ways to see Jesus is to hear how he's working in the lives of the people around us. So we, we're honest about our doubts, but we're also honest about the wonderful things that Jesus does um, for each of us. The second thing is we set up Ebenezer stones. So I've talked about this a bunch, but the Ebenezer stones were... You know, in First Samuel, when God wins a battle for the people, he says, hey, tip that big giant stone over there. Tip it upright. Call it an Ebenezer stone. And every time you walk past it, remember that this is the place where God won a battle for you. So in our lives, we need to have Ebenezer stones. So look back at the things. When you come to a moment of doubt here, look back to where God has worked in your life before and say, whoa, okay, that's something I can, that's something solid that I can say God did for me. And then that'll help you see the beauty of who he is. And it'll help you with the doubt here. Um, and then the last thing is just the, I mean, the obvious stuff, right? Scripture and prayer. Um, let me, you know, this is what I'll give another pitch for our reading plan. Um, this is one of the big reasons we got to be people of the word. It's because the more time we spend in the word, the more uh, we see who Jesus really is. And the more we see who Jesus really is, the more we'll love him. And so just being constant people of the word helps push the doubt out of our lives and replace it um, with our wonderful king and our wonderful savior. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you that, um, you know, you are the king of doubters in that, like, you're the king of a bunch of people who are not perfect and we doubt and we struggle. And I thank you for just the way that you're gracious with your people, with us, your children. So I just, I just pray, Lord, for anybody out there who's struggling with faith, you know, with um, disappointment in life, all the stuff that COVID has brought on and just this, this division in our country. And there's so many reasons to say, God, are you in control? I just pray that you would help us to calm down and to, to, to open our Bibles and to see how wonderful you truly are and to just put our hope in, in the way that you are bringing restoration into our world. So we thank you for being a wonderful king. We thank you for being a wonderful savior, even though you're not always the savior that we want you to be. We thank you that your way is better. And I just pray and, you know, I thank you for your loving and uh, tone with us. Um, imperfect and uh, sometimes faithless people. We love you so much. You're so amazing. Amen.